Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. In times of crisis, we start to look for a leader, someone who can help us get out of this jam, this trouble. This is a trope of every comic book universe movie and half of all the action adventure stuff. But it is true. When things are bad, we first look to people with experience, with knowledge, with strength to lead us away from whatever is wrong. There was a lot of this sort of talk among rock fans at the end of the 1990s. Pop, electronica, and hip-hop had taken over. Rock itself had fallen into the doldrums, and every fan was hoping and praying that someone or something would come along to inject new life into the genre. And as hopeless as some people felt at the time, sometimes you just got to be patient. A couple of things inevitably happen when it seems that rock is on the ropes. First of all, a new generation of young people decide to take matters into their own hands and kickstart things themselves. We saw this with the indie rock revolution that started taking hold in the very late 1990s and then exploded for the next decade. Second, trends and cycles in music and demographics inevitably start to work in favor of the music you like. For the previous 50 years, when rock was on the descent, pop was on the ascent and vice versa. In the early 2000s, it was time for that polar shift in the public's tastes. And third, sometimes the old guard just needs a little time to catch their breath, to, you know, take the lay of the land and to figure out what their next move should be in a world that's changed. And if they do it right, well, their careers could move into a new phase, a new act. This is exactly what happened in the first half of the first decade of the 21st century. And the results were amazing. This is the history of the aughts, part three, the return of rock. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and I'm sorry to sound so pessimistic and whiny again to start the show, but I need to underscore how dire rock fans felt the situation was with their music at the beginning of the 2000s. And as a guy who was working in alt-rock radio back then, we were really worried. Was this the end? It seems melodramatic and hysterical now, but if you were into music back then, you will remember that things were not good. Yes, things were starting to get really interesting with the rise of indie alt-rock, but that was still largely invisible as the calendar moved from 1999 to 2000. Its time would come, but not quite yet. We were all left asking the same question, who or what was going to save rock in the 21st century? 
Meanwhile, there were people within the industry trying to figure out the way the wind was blowing. All the kids that were into Backstreet Boys and NSYNC and Britney Spears would soon grow older. If the past was any indication, that kind of demographic shift means a shift in musical tastes. Tweens become teens, teens become young adults, and they start to want music with more substance and authenticity and meaning. The first indication that something might be changing came on June 13th of 2000. That's when MTV, the chief spreaders of the pop plague of the time, released a compilation album they entitled The Return of the Rock. Now, that seemed rather odd because at this time, MTV was hammering away with videos by Mariah Carey and Savage Garden and 98 Degrees and Destiny's Child and InSync and Enrique Iglesias. And this is when they decided to put out a compilation featuring System of a Down and Slipknot and Stained and Kid Rock and Papa Roach and Incubus? Did MTV know something we didn't? Incubus with Pardon Me, released as a single on February 22, 2000. At the time, they were most generally classified as a new metal band, which was a bit odd because outside of the scratching, that was hardly a new metal song. But then, wait, was new metal maybe evolving into something less polarizing? Could be. Then again, there was this new band out of Los Angeles called Linkin Park. They were young and loud and very much into some elements of new metal, or at least they liked particular rap and hip-hop elements of it. After being turned down about four dozen times by various record labels, and that is not an exaggeration, four dozen is the number, they were finally signed to Warner Brothers on their fourth try. They had been rejected three times, fourth try, they got in. No one at the label, with the exception of the guy who successfully begged his bosses to give the band a contract, thought that Linkin Park would amount to anything. So when their debut album, Hybrid Theory, came out on October 24th, 2000, nobody expected it to sell. But it sold a lot. 32 million copies. It remains the best-selling rock album of the 21st century. We also need to look at U2 when it comes to revitalizing rock in the 21st century. They had an extremely important role. After a spectacular streak that began in the mid-80s, there was a misstep with the pop album in 1997. It just didn't work with fans, it didn't work with radio, it didn't work with anyone. In fact, we could do an entire show deconstructing the pop album and what went wrong. The result was a creative crisis within the U2 organization. They desperately needed a course correction. But what kind? And what would it sound like? Meanwhile, they were being singled out by rock fans and critics. And the message was, we need you. We need you to save rock for the world. Honestly, that was the message being beamed their way. So the pressure was really, really on. It took two years to record the follow-up to Pop. And they decided they needed to go back to the future. So after sitting out the Pop album... Producer Brian Eno, the guy in the studio going all the way back to The Unforgettable Fire in 1984, was asked back. 
And he was joined by Daniel Lanois, who had worked on that album, The Joshua Tree and Actung Baby. The team that helped shape U2's most successful albums, with over 60 million in sales, was back together. Surely they could come up with something that would save rock. In fact, throughout the recording, Bono kept saying that with this album, they were, quote, reapplying for the job of the best band in the world. Here's Bono and Larry Mullen. Yeah, well, you know, the whole idea was to rediscover why you got into a band, to kind of strip away artifice, stop trying to assimilate what's going on around you, and rather rediscover what's kind of inside you as a band, you know, the thing that you do that no one else can do. And, of course, there are different colors in the U2 spectrum that over the years, and but there are things that we've discovered are kind of essential. And being in a room with people that you've gone through a lot with over the years and trying to write songs that, that, that rely just on that. And I include Dan Lanois and Brian Eno as sort of a support system in that regard. They're people you can have in the room that you don't have to talk to. I think that we're particularly difficult to work with because it's not like it's one person. There are four people who've got very strong ideas and very strong opinions about how things should be done. And Brian and Danny are both artists in their own right. And sometimes they like to think that it should be another way. So you end up with a six-way boxing match sometimes, uh, which can be quite funny, uh, but also can be quite tiresome. So, I mean, I think Brian and Dan are at their best when they sort of leave us to it. And especially for, for, I mean, Dan just spent a lot of time in the studio, just basically having a look and, you know, so just checking in and, you know, just hung around and and, and helped us through some things. And then um, Brian would just sort of fly in, like once every two or three, we'd just fly in and just be able to, like, just knock off things. So it was a very, it was a different way of working this time. Other records, they've been, both of them have been around for the duration and we've completely crushed them by the end. This time around, it's slightly different. It's like having a terrorist and a gardener working with you. Brian would come in with a, you know, some Semtex and, you know, he'd throw the firecrackers and, and some CS gas. Dan is more just kind of... Sprinkling some water. Sort of, yeah, he's kind of just less at first visible. And then you realise that he's that for him I think music's a kind of miracle and he just kind of wants to be around it he knows that there's an environment in which it grows and he is the best in the world at finding that at that place you know but what was what is attractive about them and what was back then was they're at the same time removed from it mm-hmm. and I think we brought them together um, on Unforgettable Fire and they are so opposite, and yet together, they um, they make a lot of sense. It was out with the loops and dancey beats and back to a more back-to-basic sort of approach. Sessions were held in Dublin and in the south of France. There was a bit of a scare when somebody broke into Bono's car and made off with a laptop full of lyrics, but then the thief sold it to a guy who immediately figured out who the owner was and gave it back. Meanwhile, The Edge was all about Back to the Future with his guitar sounds, too. The other three guys did not like the tone of his guitar in some of the songs, especially this one particular song. They'd say things like, uh, you know, no, Edge, come up with something else. That's from 1983, mate. Come up with something a little bit more modern. But in the end, the Edge won, and it worked. Here's Bono again. It was called Always, and um, in fact, 
because it, it is kind of it doesn't really make sense but if you listen to the verse and you hear Edge's backing vocal and I think I'm saying something like um, something about you found a friend take you out of this place you think Edge is singing out of this place he's singing always because that's it's a kind of it's a kind of just memory of this thing it was just left there on the track you know all of our stuff comes out of improvisation and we kind of got up and got rolling on it. And then this idea of Beautiful Day, a song about somebody who loses everything, all the things in their life that they thought were important, but has never felt better. That idea then kind of started to shape the song, and we went off and pursued that. It was a Somewhere in my archives, I have a copy of Britain's Q magazine from November of 2000. U2 is on the cover, and the headline reads, Trust Them, They've Come to Save Rock and Roll. And it appeared at the same time as the release of the new album, All That You Can't Leave Behind. Now, suffice it to say that the album put U2 back on a correct path, selling 12 million copies, making it the fourth highest-selling U2 album of all time. There were seven Grammy Awards, and the 113-date Elevation Tour grossed nearly $150 million from 2.1 million people buying tickets. All right, so between U2, Linkin Park, and whatever MTV seemed to know about the future, maybe rock was about to have a major rebirth. It was. More in a moment. This is part three of a look at the alt-rock of the aughts, the first decade of the 21st century. And this episode is all about the return of rock to a place of dominance in the zeitgeist. U2 wasn't the only monster band to get back on tracks in the aughts. The Red Hot Chili Peppers had righted themselves after some serious guitarist issues. Now, to be fair, their turnaround began with the Californication album in 1999 with the return of John Frusciante, and that record sold somewhere north of 13 million copies through late 99 and 2000. The Chili's were able to build on that with the By The Way album in 2002, a lot of the credit has to go to John, because he really took over with this second record, dictating pretty much all the sounds and tones. I talked to Flea about the record in Santa Monica, just before it came out. Now, you're faced with following up an album that sold 13 million copies. I mean, you got to think about that. It's got to play with your head a little bit. Not in the slightest. No? No, nope. don't care. Just got a job to do, got some music to play, and that's it? I love playing music. It's like... Uh... No, honestly, I'd, I'd tell you if it did, it doesn't have anything to do with, you know, how I think about playing music for me. And I think for all of us, in the, I mean, I can't speak for everyone, I can just speak for myself, but I feel like just very fortunate to be in a position that people care about what we have to play, and even more so because we sold a lot of records, and so people are going to be anticipating this record, and I feel like we really took time and care and, and nurtured every song and every note, for that matter, to be as good as it could be, and to let every idea that we have really uh, have its best opportunity to come to life and be a vibrant song. And I just feel really proud of, of the work that we've done, and I feel comfortable with giving that to the world, you know. And what the world wants to do with it after that is the world's choice. You know, I feel proud that we worked really hard on our record. When you, I mean, not even. I mean, even if it came easy, it was a fact that we worked really hard. But whatever, I feel really proud of the music that we've made. So, it's not a concern for me. Anything else? I mean, obviously, I want to sell a bunch of records, sure. But uh, you know, I'm not worried about it. It's not part of the, the process of the way that I think. 
When uh, when you guys were doing Californication, um, you got together. Was it in your garage, or your place? Um, yeah, a lot of it was done in my garage until I started freaking out because of my girlfriend and told us everyone they had to leave. So, so how did how did this one come together? Did you have a garage to go to? <laughs> no, this one we rehearsed in a, in a Hollywood rehearsal space <laughs> uh, called the Swing House. It's a good place to rehearse at, and um, and we went there and basically just went there five days a week and and. Uh, Sat in the room and played. Standing in line to see the show tonight, and there's a light on. Heavy glow. By the way, I tried to stay, I'd be there. Waiting By the end of 2003, Rock's Resurrection was well underway with plenty of big records. Let me detail some of what happened in a very short period of time, which is to say from 2001 to 2004. Ready? The surprise multi-platinum success of Amy Lee and Evanescence, another group that some insisted on placing on the fringes of new metal. Queens of the Stone Age was beginning to emerge as a serious force, thanks to three strong albums, Rated R in 2000, Songs for the Death in 2002, and Lullabies to Paralyze in 2005. Green Day, who had been written off as old and tired, stormed back with the American Idiot album, massive hit, 16 million albums sold. Meanwhile, The Offspring was unstoppable. Blink-182 was selling albums by the tens of millions. Weezer roared back with the Make Believe album, which turned into their best chart performer ever. Then there was Audio Slave, which rose out of the ashes of both Soundgarden and Rage Against the Machine, and were on the road to releasing three consecutive platinum albums, as well as winning a series of Grammy Awards. Jane's Addiction returned with a reunion album called Strays. The Beastie Boys came back after a six-year absence with their To the Five Burrows album. Canada was contributing, Some 41 with Does This Look Infected, and Chuck, all between 2001 and 2004, all went gold or platinum in Canada, the US, the UK, and Japan. Three Days Grace exploded with their self-titled debut album, platinum in both Canada and the US. Then Finger Eleven scored a massive hit with their self-titled album from 2003, which included the single One Thing. That was a genuine top 40 hit in the US. That album also included the song Paralyzer, a real rocker, which stayed on the Canadian modern rock charts for 52 straight weeks. And we must acknowledge Nickelback. They were one of the most successful rock bands of the decade. 2001's Silver Side Up, that sold 10 million copies. And it contained a single entitled How You Remind Me. That was the most played song on American radio for the entire decade. Now, let me say that again. No song by any other artist was on American radio more than Nickelback's How You Remind Me for a full 10-year period. Biggest rock song and biggest rock crossover of the aughts. Now, let's talk about the Foo Fighters. They were starting to peak, reliably delivering a multi-platinum rock radio-friendly album every two years or so. In many ways, the Foo Fighters were the perfect saviors of rock. They were led by a very likable member of one of the greatest bands of the 20th century. Their songs rocked, but they were also catchy. They worked extremely hard and toured almost constantly. They exhibited a serious sense of humor, self-deprecating humor too. And they seemed to be all about the music and all about the fans. In fact, let me say this. If science had been tasked with saving rock by creating the perfect alt-rock band for the early 1990s, in a, in a lab, a petri dish, or whatever, they could have not done any better than the Foo Fighters. They were, in retrospect, exactly what rock needed. It sounds like 
Another major rock artist from the 90s to reassert his presence was Trent Reznor with Nine Inch Nails. After six years in the wilderness and dealing with various addictions, a clean and refocused Trent was back, and he was on a mission, which started with a 2005 album entitled With Teeth. I had a chance to talk to Trent back then. Well, the reality is that I had to spend some time getting my life in order because I'd, I'd really fallen to the clutches of addiction. And um, it was time for me to kind of face up to that fact and deal with it. You know, and come 2001, after the last tour, I was at a point where I was ready to check out. You know, I was, I, my, my soul had been crushed by uh, being an alcoholic and an addict. And there was no denying at that point. And it had consumed me and destroyed me. And uh, there was a fork in the road, and it was either death by my own hand or from any number of other ways it could have happened, or fix myself. And it took a moment of clarity to realize I wasn't ready to die yet, or hoped I wasn't ready to die yet. And I took the means necessary and decided I would do anything, anything to turn my life around, because it was not going well. And... Around that same time, you know, I also, for a change, decided to put a little effort into myself. And I think ever since I got a record deal, I hadn't ever spent any time trying to take care of myself. And I don't mean physically in as much as, uh, you know, I thought I didn't need people and I didn't need friends. And, uh, you know, if I, situations would come up I didn't want to deal with, I just wouldn't deal with them. And I'd, I'd found something that makes me feel good, and that was writing music or recording or playing or touring. And so I'd use that as that was my way of dealing with everything, you know, and the end result was that closet full of uh, crap. Things didn't go away. They just waited in there. You know, I think in the mid-90s when superstardom kind of set in and I was ill-equipped to deal with that to begin with, you know, I, I started relying on self-medicating to get through those things and that made me more interesting and that made it able for me to walk into a room full of people. You know, and for a while it did do that. But... Um, I had no idea what I was up against, you know. I had no idea really what was happening to me. And um, I had addressed the situation like in 97 and was kind of secretive about it and didn't want anyone to know because I felt very ashamed that I'd let something get out of hand. And I kind of white-knuckled it through the recording of The Fragile and on a pretty slippery slope. And when the record came out, you know, I thought, hey, I'm cured. It's debuted at number one. And it was off to the races again. And that... Uh, then I spent a good year and a half testing to see how low I could go. And I, I found that I can go as low as I'd never want to go again. It's a miracle that I didn't die on that tour. And it was just a miserable time of being sick and sweating and vomiting and hiding and just being awful. So anyway, when I did get my act together and really learned a number of lessons that, you know, primarily humility being humble. Uh, I learned that I don't know everything, and I'm not as smart as I thought I was, and the world doesn't revolve around me, believe it or not, and uh, that I don't know everything, and I can't control you and everything else. Things started to get better. Things started to get a lot better, and I decided also at that time to to kind of ease up on the pressure I've been putting on myself to continually try to outdo myself or piling on work I know I can't get through, you know, because uh, it's, it was a way of not dealing with everything else in my life. And uh, I wanted to take a little time and get comfortable in my own skin and feel like I could get to know myself again, get to like myself again, because I hated myself at the end of that run. 
And I also was very much afraid that I didn't know if I could write anymore. I didn't know if I could write sober. I didn't know if I could, uh, I didn't know if I destroyed my brain. And I really wasn't up for finding that out a week into sobriety. I figured I'd like to see what planet I'm on and see how things work on this new, in this new world. And, you know, so I did. I took some time off. That was in 2001, and that's, you know, sh- shortly thereafter, 9-11, and the world seemed crazy. And, uh, and I was grateful to be present for all that. And I, I took care of myself, and I did what I was told to do. And I, I wanted to get to the bottom of what kind of madness was at work inside me, aside from being an addict things that kind of pushed me in that direction to turn to those things to get through life and just started a lot of work on myself. And now that he was healthy, Trent was prepared to do his part to change music. Generally, I've been pretty disgusted with music in the last several years. The, the sound-alike formula and the, and the new trend of emulating a cool old band is somehow a legitimate reason to have a career today. It seems a bit single-dimensional to me, one-dimensional. And without even, you know, you can think of several bands that it's pretty clear who they like, you know? And they're taking advantage of the fact that today's short-term audience of kids doesn't happen to know the people that did it the first time around that actually created the, the look and the vibe and the sound. And you know who you are out there. After being written off by so many in the late 90s and very early 2000s, rock, especially all the flavors of alt-rock, was firmly back in charge by 2005. If you were into music back then, you'll remember that we were spoiled with riches. Not only were all the monsters doing well, you know, Nine Inch Nails, U2, Chili Peppers, Green Day, Foo Fighters, Offspring, Blink-182, Audio Slave, A Reunited Pixies, and Jane's Addiction, A Revitalized Depeche Mode, there was a crop of new young bands breathing new life into alt-rock. And we'll go there in a moment. This is episode three of our look at the history of alt-rock and the aughts, the first decade of the 21st century. And like I said a few minutes ago, everything was coming together for rock fans by 2005. All the big heritage acts were back, releasing successful albums and embarking on massive tours. And a whack of new and newish acts were making their presence known. Out of Australia came Jet with their new album, Get Born. Massive worldwide hit. Franz Ferdinand's second album, You Could Have Had It So Much Better, built on the platinum success of their debut record. Coldplay had evolved from this twee post-Britpop band to a group selling 12 million copies of A Rush of Blood to the Head in 2002 and then 13 million copies of X and Y in 2005. The Killers' first two albums from 2004 and 2005 sold 12 million. And there was much support coming from the touring industry. Lollapalooza was back after some rough years and a cancellation in 2004. The festival now established itself as a one-time-only thing with a big event every summer in Chicago. And Coachella was getting bigger and bigger every year with a lineup that was almost exclusively alt-rock. Headliners in the middle lots included Weezer, Tool, Depeche Mode, Radiohead, The Cure, a reform Smashing Pumpkins. Meanwhile, down the bill in smaller fonts, we had groups like the Ya Ya Ya's. It really was a pretty awesome time to be an all-rock fan.
The period from 2004 to 2007 has gone down in history as one of the most fertile times for alt-rock. Big Heritage acts were delivering the goods for major labels. The major labels were also delivering new acts that sounded pretty good. And every month, the indie rock scene was getting bigger, more popular, and more influential. But you know what happens with music cycles, right? What goes up must come down. And that brings us to what we'll discuss on Chapter 4 of this series. The middle aughts was a great time for alt-rock. Everyone and everything came together at the same time. Yes, the music industry was still trying to deal with the internet and file sharing and declining CD sales. And yes, there were job losses. And yes, bands lost their places on rosters. But for the fans of alt-rock, it looked like, it felt like, everything was just fine. In fact, more than fine. But just like we saw in the middle 90s, such bubbles eventually burst as social conditions, economics, and demographics continue to inexorably march forward. On Chapter 4 of our look at the alt-rock of the aughts, we'll look at the rapid disruption that we began to see in about 2007. In a shockingly short period of time, guitars fell out of favor and pop made a huge comeback. Meanwhile, an economic disaster seemed to change the entire mood of alt-rock. We'll go through all that next time on our history of alt-rock in the aughts. This program is available as a podcast. If you like what you hear, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of them available for your binging pleasure. Apple Podcasts is just one place to go. You can also check out Spotify or, frankly, just about any other platform that offers on-demand audio. We are on all of them. We have my website, which is ajournalofmusicalthings.com. It is updated every day and has a fine daily newsletter sent right to your inbox so you don't miss anything. And we can also connect on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. All email can go through alan at alancross.ca. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Podcasts.